0: Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. This episode is brought to you by Cave Social. Cave is a marketing agency based out of Los Angeles that helps businesses grow online through creating custom social media content and running their social media ad campaigns. So if you need help growing your company, head over to cavesocial.com, schedule a free consultation with them and they'll be able to help you out. Cool. Today, I'm talking with the co-founder and CMO of Better Booch, a kombucha company, and her name is Ashley Lockerby. Very, very cool conversation talking about how they scaled up their operation a uh, husband and wife team from farmers markets all the way through to retailers launching their new e-com platform. Very, very cool conversation talking about sales segmentation between retailers and now shifting to online during coronavirus. So yeah, sit back. If you're in the consumer package goods space, I think this is a good episode to listen to. Yeah, sit back and enjoy. Oh. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the show. I am here with Ashley Lockerbie. Ashley, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me.
0: Ashley, everyone. She is the co-founder and CMO of Better Booch. She is a former international Touring musician, and now you've taken a premium small craft kombucha company from farmers markets to over two thousand retailers. Tell me a little bit about that story, transitioning from, I guess, music to really what made you think of Better Booch and actually take the leap of faith and start the company.
1: Sure, I was touring for about pretty aggressively for about four years. I was Rihanna's backup singer, and I was traveling three hundred and fifty days out of the year. (laughs) You can imagine is not the healthiest lifestyle. Um constantly in transit, not a lot of access to great healthy food, pretty much no regular routine. So it was very difficult to maintain a healthy lifestyle while on the road. So after about four years, it was December, it was right before I was going home for the holidays and the tour manager emailed me my schedule for the entire year up to December of the following year. And it was at that point when I said, okay, I don't think I'm going to be doing this for another year. So I made the decision to transition off of the road. And at that time, about four months later, I met my now husband, Trey Lockerbie, with whom I started Better Booch. And he was in the same position. He had been touring for about five years. He was a Nashville musician, so country singer, songwriter, an artist. And We had both come to the same conclusion separately, and that was to pursue a more well-rounded, well-balanced lifestyle. Because when we were thinking, you know, 10, 20 years ahead of what we wanted our lives to look like, it definitely wasn't traveling all the time and having no meaningful relationships and that kind of thing. So. When we met, Trey had been making kombucha at home because his sister was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 24 years old. And kombucha was pretty prominent in the cancer community at the time because of its potentially anti-cancerous properties and a lot of other great things about kombucha, health benefits about kombucha. So we started making it in our home and we started playing around with different tea blends and we thought, gosh, this is way better than what's available on store shelves. And there's so much variety that you can get with different fermentation times and just playing around with recipes and different teas. We figured we bet a lot more people would drink this if they knew how delicious it could actually be. And so we decided to start selling at farmer's markets and grew organically from there.
0: Very cool. And was the name always Better Booch? Was that day one conception or did did it evolve?
1: (laughs) Yes. And actually the name came from when I was a kid whenever we would have to think of team names for like, you know, kickball or softball teams or whatever, the team name that my team would always be would be team better because then no matter what the other people said, we were always better. That's how the name BetterBooch came about.
0: Very cool. Now talk to me about those early days in the farmer's market. Did those times really provide insight? Did you make, take a lot of feedback from customers at that point and go back and refine the product or was it really just a mechanism for exposure? And you kind of already had the product locked in
1: actually all of the above honestly we did a lot of research up front before we launched the product but there is this saying of if you're launching with a perfect product you're launching too late just really important to get out there and get real time feedback and real people feedback. Well, first of all, we had an education barrier when we launched Better Boosh. We launched it almost nine years ago now. So kombucha was not as widely known as it is today. And there were so many people who just had never heard of it and and were like, fermented tea, what is that? And why do I need this? Farmer's markets were really, really valuable for that just like one-on-one product education. As well, I like to think that the reason, the biggest benefit to the farmers markets in those early days for us was cash flow. Because for many reasons, cash flow in a consumer packaged goods business is so important because you've got to buy all the materials to make the product before you even make a sale. So having that retail cash flow every week was invaluable for us and really kept us going in the early days.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And like you said, right, when there's so much upfront cost and sunk cost into product development to be able to push units becomes absolutely pivotal. Now, the farmers' market, a lot of, you know, education at the one-to-one level, obviously, or maybe not obviously, depending on where you're listening to this show, but kombucha has exploded. In the last, I would say, what, four or five years? I mean, you probably know better than me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I feel like it's becoming more and more mainstream. You're seeing it on more and more shelves. Now, at what point did the education strategy really go from one to one to say, okay, we need to maybe put a message out online or we need to do something at a bigger level when it comes to educating people on the product, whether that's through your own media on the website or did you guys do any PR runs? How did that strategy evolve?
1: We definitely grew organically over the years, but social media has been a huge part of our business from the very beginning. The day that we launched, we had an Instagram account. The day that we launched, we had a website. So social media and digital marketing has, unless you're paying for media or paying doing paid ads marketing through social media is free. So that was the low hanging fruit that we could capture in those early days. So we did that. And over the years, we were able to invest more and more money into it and more time into it. But we've always had a digital presence. I think as awareness of kombucha grew kind of in, our, in the community, I mean, the category has seen massive, massive growth, like you said, over the past eight years, and especially in the past, I'd say four years our company grew. So we really got in at the right time, I'd say. And there was this moment when we were doing farmer's markets for about three years. And then we ended up creating a permanent kombucha bar, we called it the booch bar at Grand Central Market, which is a food hall type of place in Los Angeles that was open seven days a week. So we consolidated all of our farmer's market into that one permanent location. And through that, We were able to capitalize on the PR that Grand Central Market was getting. And that was really our first foray into the world of PR. And we were written up in Petite and LA Times. And really, I mean, every major food publication covered Grand Central Market because they had a great agency and a great buzzworthy thing going on. So we were able to piggyback on that. And then once we raised money in 2019, we retained our own PR firm. But before that, we really didn't pay for PR on our own. And
0: that's a good strategy. And one of the things that from a listener standpoint that I think to really pull out of that is looking for opportunities to piggyback on some other brands or other partners. PR is a great way to get yourself attention as well. Now, like you said, the space is blowing up. You got in at the right time, but I'm assuming a lot more competitors have started to flood the market. Mm -hmm. So talk to me now about really separating yourself from competitors and how how do you approach that? Is it through storytelling? Is it really through product quality? I'm also assuming if you could touch on it, that there's a lot of like white labeling taking place. So how do you handle all of that mixed in together from your marketing standpoint?
1: Okay. So that's a big question. So I'll, I'll speak to product quality first. So Yes, there has been a lot of white labeling happening and in fact we were even ma- making we were co-packing for some other larger brands as a means of helping our with our cash our own cash flow it's non-dilutive capital basically. So we did launch a few products for other people and bigger companies who we thought for sure they would be, you know, they were throwing so much money behind it. We thought for sure they would be successful and what we did found what we found was surprising because those products didn't do as well, and what we attribute that to is that the kombucha customer is really interested in authenticity. You know, kombucha is brewed similarly to beer or wine, and so it's less attractive to get the generic beer or wine, right? You want the expert brewer behind the product that you're drinking because there's a certain amount of like, it, there's a lot of brand loyalty happening in the kombucha space, so. On that note, we've definitely spent a lot of years and a lot of time and a lot of money investing in our product. And we have on our team, on our brewing team, we have a microbiologist, a chemist, and a chef who develop all of our products and have really honed our brewing process to be what we think is spectacular. So there's what I'll say about the From a brand differentiation standpoint, we try to have a content-focused strategy through all of our platforms. So we have a blog on our website. We have a pretty dynamic Instagram account, and we're starting to build more on Twitter and Facebook, although Instagram has been our main focus thus far. We're also starting a TikTok account, but we really try to offer something of value, whether it be educational or something creatively inspiring or something of value in everything that we post. So we either try to make you laugh. We try to offer something creatively inspiring or we try to offer something educational. And then maybe 10 to 20% of the time, we try to sell you some kombucha. And in that way, I think it really goes into the brand loyalty play where we're trying to create an emotional attachment with our community because we care about them and we want them to care about us.
0: It's so huge when you you talk about that matrix and really tying content back to themes. This is one of the things we do when we work with clients. I always go and say, look, we got to tie back to, you're going to have some blend of these four things which is entertainment inspiration education and product and looking at okay where does a message tie into that and what platform is going to be best for each theme right obviously on TikTok, it's going to skew more entertainment so yeah that's something for the listeners when you're creating your own editorial calendars think about how each piece of content really ties into a theme i think that will help a lot and that sounds like from what you're saying you know, it's a pivotal thing when you go to build out your content strategy and really tell the story of mm-hmm. Better Booch. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about the blog. You've talked about product, and how do you take that now? You know, take me back to that point. You're at the farmers market. You're you're doing this one-on-one communication. Talk to me about that getting into Whole Foods. That process and. The challenge, I guess, that it was the getting into that retailer, because that kind of seems to be, you know, the prized possession when it comes to in the CPG space to, hey, how do I get into Whole Foods, especially when you're looking at the health health side of things. So talk me through that experience.
1: Well, Whole Foods is not the biggest retailer by a long shot. But if you are in the natural CPG category, they are, they're the thought leader and they're the one to vet products. And if you're in Whole Foods, then it's kind of a a snowball effect, a downhill snowball effect after that. So definitely you want to be in Whole Foods. And I would say if you're in the natural space, you want to be in Whole Foods first. I mean, it was tough to get into Whole Foods. It's really competitive, right? And we knocked on that door several years in a row before it was open to us. So that process was just mainly about persistence. I mean, we were like the thorn in their side for so long, <laughs> better term. We were very annoying. And we finally we finally got their attention and finally got in and now we have an awesome relationship with them and we're about to launch into two more regions and yeah, it's a great relationship and it's done very well for us.
0: Very cool. Yeah, it's one of those things that uh, from doing the show and interviewing, you know, a lot of plant-based natural foods, uh, a lot of consumer package goods, which you know are getting into Whole Foods. It seems to be a very similar story, which is, excuse me, we had to keep knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door, and that's how we got there. So I I think that's a powerful message, right? To not get discouraged when, hey, the first attempt at getting into a retailer or maybe it's getting a guest post somewhere or anything goes awry to to keep trying.
1: Oh, totally. And then you just take away the nose because while we were waiting for a response from Whole Foods, we were building up our business. I mean, we had we had a lot of distribution in surrounding the SoCal area before they finally let us in. In like basically every coffee shop, natural, small grocery and cafe that we possibly could to where at a certain point it was silly of them not to let us in because we had so much brand awareness. Even our customers were asking, why aren't you at Whole Foods? You know? So we just made it undeniable.
0: I I love that correlation, right? When you're now where you're at, when you look back at it and you go, Oh we were getting into everything around that it almost became like you said a no-brainer for them
1: mm-hmm. when
0: at, when it first started and you're the new company there's much more of that well who are you right mm-hmm. but now that you have a little bit of proven work and proven distribution underneath your belt people are going to start to take notice
1: mm-hmm.
0: so very very interesting shifting gears a little bit i want to talk to you about really sales and marketing from a okay getting into retailers versus online how important has the e-com side of the business been and really putting customers through to order from the website direct or has the focus been more on the retailers?
1: Well, for 99% of our business, it has been on retailers solely. So we just launched direct to consumer through Amazon in September of 2019. And we launched direct to consumer through our own website in January of 2020. And then the world experienced a global pandemic. And we were very, very glad that we had that direct-to-consumer pipeline already established um, because we, during the first major shutdown in March and April, our e-com sales became 60% of our business, whereas they were about 5% of our business prior. So it was huge, hugely important. Now, obviously the margin, we cold ship our kombuchas alive and raw. So that does complicate things from an e-comm standpoint, which is why we hadn't been involved with that before, but it honestly saved us because that cash flow.
0: Wow. That's one of those things, right? Oh, obviously nobody predicted, you know, the last five, what are we at? Four months, five months at the Mm -hmm. time of being locked down right now, but you know, beforehand to get that in place. And the lesson I take from that, and I heard it, I heard it or read it a few years ago, but it was as if you're three times bigger. Mm. was always be preparing as if you're three times bigger and what would you need to facilitate those sales mm. or what would that be and it sounds like you know it's like one of those things where maybe not hearing that advice but you guys were doing that subconsciously right it's like okay we have to add this this next component to our business and figuring out how to do it, the DTC side and the mm-hmm. e and then silver lining of this whole thing right of covid but that you okay now you can actually facilitate the orders through that and you're not scrambling to patch together some sort of ecom process which I'm sure a lot of companies had to do and i feel for them but it, it really speaks to that like you're already preparing and setting forward you know the next for that next challenge so mm-hmm. very very cool to see
1: thank you yeah and actually to that point it's been like that the entire time of our growth where I mean, since the very beginning, we were always we haven't been comfortable, I'll say, in the eight and a half, close to nine years that we've been in business because we're always trying to grow forward and stretch to grow, right? I'm kind of still waiting for that time when I'm like, Okay, now we're now we can just be comfortable, but hasn't happened yet.
0: (laughs) And you know it's funny, I remember I was at little networking event in LA and they brought in a speaker and it was Ali Webb and she's the founder of dry bar. And she got on stage and she's like, yeah, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. We're just trying to push forward every day and not be comfortable and keep moving. And I was like, Mm -hmm. it was like four or five, four years ago. And it was just so awesome to see someone who at that point was at, I think 110 locations, Mm -hmm. you know, on the cover of magazines. And she's like, yeah, we're just trying to like push forward and see what works really spoke to a deeper level of like, oh, this is in your DNA and it transcends through the company. So very, very cool. Very cool to hear your story, Ashley. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Before I let you go, can you let everybody know where they can find out more about Better Booch connect with you online?
1: Absolutely. So our website is betterbooch.com, B-O-O-C-H. And you can also find us on Amazon, but I encourage you to check us out on betterbooch.com because we have lots of fun information available through that. You can find us on Instagram at betterbooch and Twitter at betterbooch. And we hope you'll drop us a line and say hello.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much again for coming on, Ashley. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. So at the bottom of your podcast app, go hit the show notes link and you'll be able to head over to BetterBooch. Thanks again for coming on. Have a great rest of the day, Ashley.
1: Thanks. You too, Jordan.
0: All right, listeners, that's it for this episode. As always, please hit like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. And I will talk to you later.